This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. The San Francisco Greenhouse Project is an urban agriculture initiative working to restore and repurpose a historic 2.2-acre agricultural site lined with abandoned agricultural greenhouses in the city's Portola community. They are looking to develop it into a collaborative visionary hub for food production, education, connection, and environmental stewardship. Caitlin Galloway is an artist and a gardener. Having been involved in urban agricultural projects for the past 15 years in San Francisco, she is the vision and strategy lead for the Greenhouse Project, and she joins us today to share more. Welcome, Caitlin. So pleased to be speaking with you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. What would you describe for listeners to be your organizing principle or motivating force for your personal relationship with plants or gardens right now in your life, Caitlin? Well, I live in a city. I live in San Francisco. Um, I love the city. It's a very alive place, um, but it can be a difficult relationship. So in order to understand the city and feel most at home with all the weirdness and complication of having so many people sharing space, uh, it's helpful for me to feel like I have some tangible relationship with the ground underneath us all um, and the plants that are living their lives around us. Take us back a little bit, Caitlin, and lead us through the, the people and places and plants that grew you into a human for whom not only would this relationship with the ground underneath you and the plants around you be uh, an organizing principle to your life, uh, but also that you are able to recognize that as important in your life. Because I think uh, that is kind of a crucial part of it. I think many people, I think all people need that connection, but not everybody recognizes it or can figure out how to express it well or you know, effectively. Mm -hmm. I was raised in the East Bay, so near the city, um, but outside of it in in the suburbs. So my upbringing was very suburban. You know, we drove around in cars. We sort of moved through the day um, from driveway to parking lot to driveway. That was my experience. And, you know, that was sort of how everyone around me lived. Um, So, you know, we, my family had a house and a lawn and a pool and we ate Kentucky fried chicken and, you know, canned vegetables. So I definitely did not grow up as a farmer or as someone who had much of a relationship with gardening at all. It just, um, it wasn't in my family culture in any way. Um, Both of my grandparents had grown up in rural areas and on farms. um, And I think spent the, the majority of their kind of adult lives trying to get as far away from that as possible and raise their families and, and their families' families. Um, to, to have moved away from that. So um, that's sort of my background and upbringing. Um, you know, I, it's really funny to think back at how much I didn't like getting dirty when I was a kid. I didn't like the sensation of having my hands dirty or my clothes dirty, which is a really funny thing to think about if you know me now. Um, <laughs> but so it, it wasn't till my adult years that I really, well, I should say I also, I read a lot of books when I was a child. So, um, you know, I think my first exposure to plants or nature was really um, largely through that. Um, I think Anne of Green Gables probably taught me what lupin was, and that was maybe my first exposure. <laughs> um, 
So, you know, it, it wasn't until my adult life that I, I started finding my own connection with plants. And that was um, through, you know, maybe in my early 20s. And when, how, yeah, how does that happen? Yeah. Well, I remember a friend of mine, I was living down in Santa Barbara for a while in California, and a friend of mine was teaching me about some of the native plants in the area. And it was a very profound experience to, to sort of learn for the first time what some of the plants around me were, their names, their characteristics, how they were related to each other. It really was, it was a formative experience. Identifying some of the plants around me, even just a few, and having the whole world sort of open up in a new way. It's like meeting all these characters around you that were strangers and now suddenly have this life and this character to them. Um, and you, you can't really unsee that, or at least I couldn't. That is an epiphany moment for many people, I think, when they go from the green blur to recognizable faces and friends as you, you know, drive down a road or you wander in a field. What year would that have been, Caitlin? And about how old were you at that at that moment? And what was it uh, your friend was involved in that they were able to share this kind of understanding with you? This particular friend was doing some native restoration work, habitat restoration work um, that I was helping with for a while. So I was really particularly learning about a lot of the kind of coastal scrub plants and, and chaparral plants in the kind of Southern California. Um, and I, I would say that was in my early 20s, so early 2000s. I like how you recognize that it, it you didn't have to know them all. You just had to recognize a couple of them. And that was that's enough of a key. And one of the things that I love about a story like yours is that it reminds us that it's never too late to learn to be in this relationship. And I think people have a feeling that if it wasn't taught to them at the knee of a grandparent or a parent, that their sort of their opportunity is passed. And the garden and the plants will tell us differently every day of every year for our whole life, I think. So, um, okay, so so take us from there. So, so from there, like you were involved in this restoration project, but um, clearly this was the kind of... Um, the seed that was sown for you to go even further. Take us on the next part of this journey. Well, around that same time in my early 20s, I also was um, getting really interested in, or I guess sort of politicized around the bigger world around me, you know, and what was, what felt at the time, and, and I guess still feels really messed up around how things work and how kind of things find their way, you know, food, for instance, finds its way into our lives. And pursuing vegetable growing and, and gardening in that way felt like a very interesting and um, engaging activity, um, you know, in those times when I was really trying to soak up as much kind of understanding as I could about how things worked. And how did that express itself? Was that personal home vegetable gardening? Was it community mm -hmm. gardening? Was it all of the above? It started for me as personal backyard gardening in whatever, you know, place I was living. Um, and then eventually that grew to community gardening. I moved to New York City for a couple of years. Um, that was, you know, I did some community gardening out there, um, some landscape work. So gardening for other people around the city um, and then kind of moving back to San Francisco in 2007 um, is when I started uh, getting more into urban agriculture, which is what I've been working on and for the, the last 15 years here and apprenticing on some farms outside of the city and um, really digging into 
you know, this relationship with plants and this understanding of what's around me through plants, um, you know, sort of digging into what that might mean in a city, what that, what that kind of relationship can look like living in a city. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, are you already involved in Little City Gardens? And tell us about how how you meet that project and um, and then how that grows in your life. So shortly after moving to San Francisco, I met a, a, a now a good friend of mine, Brooke Budner, who had started a, a small vegetable garden in a backyard that wasn't hers. She saw uh, the backyard of an apartment building that was unused a couple doors down. The, the garden was weedy and overgrown and no one was doing anything with it. So she contacted the the owner of that building and asked if she could start a garden there. And he said yes. And then shortly after that is when we met and sort of connected over our mutual interest and hunger for space to, to garden and grow food and kind of explore um, where that might take us in San Francisco. And so we really dove into that project together and started growing vegetables sort of as intensively and with as much intention as we could in that backyard. And that grew into a much bigger project that I don't think we set out to do in the beginning. And that was Little City Gardens. Around this time in San Francisco, this was 2009 or so, um, there was a lot of interest in local food movements, supporting your local farmer, knowing where your food was coming from. All of those things were kind of widely adopted by a lot of, you know, a, a lot of San Francisco. Um, the mayor at the time had issued an executive directive um, to the cities, you know, sort of declaring San Francisco was going to be a leader in these in sort of healthy food and urban agriculture um, and was going to make space for this type of activity. And so what we saw at that time was um, a lot of interest, a lot of enthusiasm, but also a lot of this work was really rooted in kind of uh, the nonprofit world, first of all, and also in a world of where volunteer labor was really necessary. So in order to in order to engage in this type of work, meaning you know urban agriculture or food growing in the city, if you didn't have your own space to do it, um, you really had to have the time and the uh, you know availability to volunteer at a, a, an already existing um, garden. And in addition, you had to devote a lot of your work to fundraising and sort of vying for some of the scarce resources that are out there for these types of projects. So we saw at that time, something that felt really important was asking the question, is it possible for there to be a working farm in this city, in this city where this interest and enthusiasm is definitely there? Is that interest and enthusiasm enough to financially support an operation? Could, in our situation, two people or, you know, in the future, could, could other people in the future potentially make a living growing food for neighbors in our city um, or at least supplement a living? And we really saw that as an important question, um, not only, you know, personally, because we were both sort of looking for work and wondering how we were going to make our living in San Francisco, but also in terms of having this urban agriculture movement in our city feel as accessible as possible um, and as inclusive as possible, we felt like this was a really important question to be asking. So um, that was sort of the beginning of that project. Like I've said, enthusiasm was very much there. We got a lot of support from the beginning for, for the idea. Um, and so we found a bigger piece of land to move on to and decided to really make a go of it. So we ran that project, which was a, a commercial working farm for 
six years. Brooke ended up moving away a couple of years after, after we really started the project and I kind of carried it forward with other friends from there. I want to unpack it a little bit because, you know, first of all, 2009, we're in the aftermath of the Great Recession. We're in a city that is well known for slow food, for, you know, food, uh, farm to fork kinds of, you know, Alice Waters, uh, really a lot of very recognizable slow food and food access projects. And um, one of the things that I see in this question that you and Brooke were entertaining is, you know, could we patch to no- together enough enough land or enough little pieces of land that we could grow enough food to make to be urban farmers, truly urban farmers? really is a question of access, right? And and equity to some extent and resourcefulness, like access to even small pieces of land like Brooke uh, retained with that back garden of an apartment building. And, and of course, it's a very different process in some ways than rural farming because you have to find the land, you have to patch it together, you have to get permission to use it, hopefully secure long enough permission to use it, that, you know, it's not taken away from you because a new development comes in, you know, all of these hazards. Um, and then you have to, to, to grow good, healthy food in the urban environment and then market it in the urban environment. So, you know, you and your, your group of good gardeners, like go into this, you spend about six years, it's called little city gardens. I take it. Um, what was the answer to your question? Can you, have an urban farming situation that allows for a good quality of life. Tell us more about that. Well, it's so funny to hear you map out the steps because it sounds really hard. <laughs> and it was. It's really hard. It yeah. was. Um, I think that the short answer to the question of can you do this is yes, but I should back up and say we really framed this to ourselves and to others as an experiment from the beginning. Um, And at that time, it felt really important to be framing it that way because this really felt like a project made up of questions more than it did a project made up of projections or answers. And so I think by framing it that way, we were really opening ourselves up to confronting some of the barriers head on, which we did. There were zoning issues we came across that we had to sort of work with some policymakers to to kind of rewrite some antiquated zoning code. And I think the the most prevailing challenge we came up against was what you've touched on, which is uh, land access and land tenure. Um, So not only do you need to secure a workable piece of land to, to embark on something like this, um, and that land, in order to to make a viable kind of at least partially viable um, farm operation, that work there's criteria that that land needs to meet. But even once that land is is found and secured, um, land tenure is is a huge issue, and and not just for urban farms. I think this speaks to a really big issue in you know s- kind of small scale farming at large is the necessity of having some security around the land that you're investing so much time and resource into. A farm is a system. It's a process. It's a set of relationships that take time to build, not just relationships between people and, you know, farmer and customer and restaurant and eater and, you know, 
grower, it's also a, a set of relationships, physical relationships between soil and perennials and sun and, you know, all of these things that, you know, it, there's no real toolkit to learning these things um, for every particular piece of patch of earth. There, there's no universal way to build a farm. It, it really has to be kind of site specific and that just takes time. This is Cultivating Place. Born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, Caitlin Galloway has a 15-year career in innovative and place-based urban agricultural projects, beginning in 2009 with something called the Little City Gardens Project. We'll be right back for more with Caitlin on how that project both asked and began to reveal some answers to the question, can a farmer make a healthy environmental and economic living in community by farming on small, not always contiguous patches of urban earth? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Jennifer. I loved when Caitlin described her first urban agricultural experiment, the Little City Gardens, like this. Quote, it really felt like a project made up of questions, more than one made up of projections or answers. It's the perfect description for me starting Cultivating Place. And heck, who am I kidding? It's the perfect description of what actually happens when any of us begins a garden, or for that matter, each new phase of life. Keep asking questions. Keep asking them of yourself and of your gardens and of your garden lives. We're back now to our conversation with Caitlin Galloway, vision and strategy lead for a San Francisco-based urban restoration and community agriculture project known as the Greenhouse Project. As we come back, Caitlin shares more about what she learned as an urban farmer and organizer from her six years with the urban farming project known as Little City Gardens. Welcome back. I think we learned a lot at Little City Gardens. I think I was surprised by some of the observations that we made there. I think we couldn't have imagined the, the benefits of that type of project and the way that type of project can really bring people together. I mean, I think mm -hmm. those words are spoken a lot. I think we can all sort of guess that that might happen, you know, and, and that's definitely a selling point for projects like this. But I think to really experience it and there was just true community around that farm. I mean, some of those neighbors of that farm are, are, I consider family and always will. And some of the people that walked onto that farm um, weren't necessarily people who considered themselves aspiring farmers or gardeners, or, you know, I think that goes back to sort of my entree into kind of um, having any relationship with plants. Um, I think it's, it's really clear to me that some of the most valuable relationships in an urban farm, because an urban farm is in a city where so many different people are, some of the most valuable connections that people find with a place are not necessarily by people who think of themselves as farmers or as gardeners or as plant people or nature people. Um, and I think that's one of the really beautiful 
things about having a, a farm in a city. Are there one or two anecdotes that you could give to people that actually illustrate what you're just saying? Like mm-hmm. how this impacted people specifically that kept giving you the affirmation that this was work that was important? Mm-hmm. Gosh, there are so many. Sometimes I wish that I had written a book about just about kind of all the cast of characters that would come around that farm. Yeah, I bet. Maybe describe what the actual farm came to be. Like, was it one or two patches? Was it just the one? So Little City Gardens um, in, in its lifespan, so around 2010 to 2016, ended up being a, on a single site. It was a three-quarter acre farm in the outer Mission neighborhood of San Francisco. It was on uh, land that used to be a creek. It was a culverted creek. So it was um, surrounded on three sides by backyards. Um, it was a long, narrow property that was really ill-suited for, for development, which is why the development of the neighborhood had sort of encroached in the way that it did and that this particular strip had sat vacant, Um, but it was very well suited for a farm. The water table was high because it was a creek bed, uh, it tended to flood in when we got a lot of rain, which is workable in a farm, um, but not so workable for for other types of development. So we were a working farm. Um, There were usually two of us employed, partially employed. I should say it was only ever part-time work, um, part-time paid work for those of us who were paid. And then there was a a rotating cast of um, various models of apprenticeship and and interns, and then really a lot of volunteer labor as well. So I think in the ways that we sort of set out to see, you know, how can farming in a city exist, um, not solely dependent on volunteer labor, we definitely found that that volunteer labor, um, we were still reliant on it. And I think, I I mean, I could, I could talk a lot about that, but, um, so we were a, a, a three-quarter acre working farm. We grew vegetables, herbs, and cut flowers uh, for sale to restaurants, local markets, and uh, neighborhood CSA. And so then um, give us one or two of the anecdotes that did come to mind about how this impacted either you know people or places. Yeah. I remember the first day after we had signed the lease with the the then owner of the property, the first day that we brought a couple of friends onto the site to just start sort of imagining how this farm would work. Um, We brought a picnic out and walked onto the site. It was just complete uh, thick weeds at that point. So we were sort of trudging out to the middle to to have a, a quiet picnic. And our next door neighbor came out and we had never met him. And he was just really curious, like, what are you doing? This this land has been vacant since I've ever lived here. And now there's this group of people that want to do something with it. I think he was skeptical. But over the course of our time there, uh, his name was Bob. And Bob became, I mean, he's a really close friend of, of mine and a lot of people at the farm. He He would come out onto the property, you know, within just the first couple months of us being there. I think him seeing us putting such effort into activating this piece of land and really 
truly wanting this to be not just for ourselves or for our sort of immediate kind of network of friends, but really truly be for the community. I think he was sold and he, um, you know, shortly after starting our work there, there was not a time that we would bring compost or manure onto the property without Bob coming out within 20 minutes with a shovel wanting to help. Uh-huh. And he would, yeah. you know, come out to the farm to say hi every day, um, usually with a beer in hand, you know, <laughs> just sort of wanting to hang out. And so I think that's just a, it's a really kind of, there are so many more stories where that comes from, but I think that just, it illustrates how much a farm in a city can really be a place for people in a range of ways, um, from people who really want to come learn how to farm, how to do something similar, just learn more about, you know, where food comes from. You know, I think a lot of people have never seen a carrot pulled from the ground. Um, And then I think there are people who maybe we'll never dig in, maybe we'll never pick up a shovel, but still feel some sense of connection or relationship with a working landscape like that in the city with people who are pouring energy into something that is, you know, for everyone, ideally. Um, I think there's just something really powerful about that. And I still struggle to find the right words to articulate how potent that felt at the time and how close of a community, a space like that really can garner. And so 2016, you transition away from the farm. I don't know if the farm closed, but tell us about that transition for the farm and for you, Caitlin. So in 2016, uh, we lost access to the space that we had been farming. The property was always privately owned um, and it had changed hands and was purchased by a, a small private school and they had intentions to build a campus on the property. Um so it was really sad. It's really, um, I think forming a, a relationship with a piece of land, um, it truly can be very profound. And I, I mean, I'm not the first one to know this. I, this was just my, my personal experience with this, um, you know, with this, with this fact. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it was not easy to pack up a, a farm that we had sort of tried so hard to to build for so long. And um, so I think I think one of the valuable connection or one of the valuable observations, you know, like I said, is that a farm really needs secure land tenure in order to survive, in order to really uh, plan for its future and have any sense of viability. Um, and I think, Throughout our time at Little City Gardens, um, the property had always been privately held. We had been working um, as part of our sort of, as we were sort of confronting some of these barriers and identifying this as a major challenge that would never go away um, and would likely be a challenge for any future farm project in San Francisco. Um, we, We engaged in conversations with some city departments and institutions some land trusts in really trying to understand what would it take to make a place like this permanent in the city? How could we secure a piece, this particular piece of land for permanent farm use so that we could really actually dig into this work and really set out to conduct the experiment that we had originally wanted to conduct. Um, So it didn't work out for that piece of land. 
Um, but I think what is so exciting to me now, and that, that kind of brings me to my the work that I'm doing now, which is um, there is an opportunity in San Francisco. And that brings us nicely to the Greenhouse Project. There's a, a two-acre piece of land not too far from where my other farm, Little City Gardens, was located. It's in the southeast of the city, and it's a historical block of greenhouses. Um, and this block of greenhouses is the last remaining site of what used to be a whole neighborhood full of family-run greenhouse operations and, and nursery operations. So what's so exciting to me is to be able to sort of bring some of the observations and conclusions that we had drawn at Little City Gardens to this potential site. Um, so the Greenhouse Project has been kind of an advocating, a group advocating for the, the preservation and um, transformation of this old historic agricultural site into a, a permanent agricultural site for the city. We've been going for the better part of a decade. Um, the, the original founders of the project started in uh, somewhere around 2012, and I joined just a couple years later. Um, and now it's the, the whole effort has grown. It's a multi-pronged sort of sister sisterhood of your or kind of coalition of organizations that are really trying to make this happen. So let me ask you a couple of questions. So give us a little bit more of the history. Like what, when were these built? Who were the agricultural, uh, you know, either people or organizations that were making use of them at what time? And we'll go from there. Um, so this particular block of greenhouses was built in the 20s. This is actually the 100-year okay. anniversary of when they were built, so 1922. Oh, that's great. They were operated, built and operated by the Garibaldi family, which were a family of Italian immigrants um, who were also joined by, you know, other Italian immigrant families at the time who built other similar operations in the area. Um, and these, they were largely flower farms, flower nurseries in this in this one portion of of the city. Um, and they grew flowers largely to be sold downtown at the SF flower market that was forming around the same time. And when do they go out of use as that? And then what happens to them before the greenhouse project gets involved? So th that operation, the Garibaldi operation was shuttered, I think in the nineties, it had a really good run. A, a lot of the greenhouses around it had succumbed to uh, development. So they had been developed into, into housing, but this one particular lot stuck around for whatever reasons. Um, and then it finally shuttered in the nineties. Um, the greenhouse project came in, you know, a couple decades later, early 2010s. Um, and it was uh, my colleagues, a couple of friends of mine, grew up in San Francisco, love the city, are very committed to, to being here and helping to kind of, they're very engaged San Franciscans. Yeah. And they really care about the future of this city. And they saw this site and just fell in love with it. It was, I mean, at the time it was, um, it had been, you know, dormant for a decade or more, a couple decades. And there were just wild roses left over from the operation that had naturalized at the site that were just overflowing through the kind of broken glass and, and wood of these old structures. So it was really romantic, really beautiful. From what I hear, the smell at that time of all these roses oh. was just like overwhelming. Right. The roses since then have been, I think, the various property owners, both the, the family members and then now the current property owners have um, taken care to, I think... Um, 
decrease the amount of romance that the site holds. <laughs> um, so the, the roses have been cut down over the years, so they're much less prominent now but it's a really beautiful site it's it's so it's a whole city block it's so full of history and so full of potential and i think to see it in person is um it's really spectacular this is cultivating place Caitlin Galloway has been working in innovative and place-based urban agricultural projects for the last 15 years. Currently, she's the vision and strategy lead on the Greenhouse Project, an urban restoration, preservation, and reuse project to bring a city block of 100-year-old wood and glass flower greenhouses and the site they are on back to life as an educational and agricultural community hub. We'll be right back for more details and plans for the Greenhouse Project. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer, thinking out loud this week. Can you believe it's July? I can't. But then there are a whole lot of things I can't believe right now. So this time disfluency shouldn't surprise me. I've been on the road quite a bit this late spring, early summer, and it's been fabulous to meet so many of you in person at these events. In Austin, Texas, as the finale speaker for Pam Pennick's Garden Spark series. In Charleston, South Carolina, in Southern Vermont. I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, in Philadelphia, and in East Hampton, New York, where I had the incredible joy of witnessing landscape designer Edwina Von Gaal's Perfect Earth Project and Two Thirds for the Birds initiative in action with meadows of wildflowers, with an osprey nest full of chicks and two doting parents, and in the transcendence of an evening field alive with hundreds and hundreds of fireflies. It was magical. In Charlottesville, Virginia, I was the annual Peter J. Hatch cabinet speaker at Monticello for the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, where I was joined in conversation by curator of plants and my friend, Peggy Cornett, as well as the foundation's field archeologist, Derek Wheeler. The three of us had the honor of exploring the idea of all the levels of invitation our gardens offer out to us and all the levels of invitation our gardens allow us to offer out to the world around us. From our inner selves, to our communities, to the greater than human planet mates we depend on. The entire 24 hours was an incredible honor in which I got to tour the gardens, the house. I was seated at dinner with one of the country's greatest constitutional lawyers, with an architectural historian, with a newly college graduated writer, with a gardener, with a plantsman, and with a presidential librarian. And we all engaged in civil conversation about the power of gardens, large and small, in our world, across our world, and across our many divides. 
You may recall me reflecting on this before, this idea of invitation in and from our gardens. And it may sound a bit trite, a bit small or frivolous. An invitation may seem like an old-fashioned sort of formality. But the way I see it, any invitation we receive is an occasion for joy. And in all of their pathways for grounding, for connecting, and for agency to affect the many challenges we face and often those we fear, I think that our gardens might just offer us the greatest invitation of our lives, which is to grow better in all of our garden arenas. What do you think? We're back now to our conversation with Caitlin Galloway, vision and strategy lead for a San Francisco-based urban restoration and community agricultural project known as the Greenhouse Project. As we come back, Caitlin shares more about the hopes, plans, and site specifics of this urban restoration, transformation, and growing project. The greenhouses, since the 90s, through today are just, it's a, it's a dilapidated dormant site. So there's nothing happening there now. It's shut down. The greenhouses are slowly um, succumbing to rain and wind and age. Um, so they're falling apart. And so when Juan Carlos Cancino, Nick Reed and David Gabriner, who are all fellow project leaders at the Greenhouse Project, when they found this site in the early 2010s, um, I think it was really clear that this site had so much history and so much potential. In order for this site to be anything community serving, it was going to take some effort. It was going to take real advocacy. So at the time, they sort of stuck a flag in the, you know, a metaphorical flag in the site and just started kind of asking around, uh, meeting neighbors, um, asking, you know, what do people want here? What do people know about this site? They dug into the history of it. They met the, the kind of remainder of the Garibaldi family that was still around. And they just started kind of surveying people around. Um, you know, what are people's wishes for this site? What do people want for this for this site in this neighborhood? And I think momentum and enthusiasm grew from there. So the Greenhouse Project was officially formed as an effort to raise awareness and, and sort of build capacity around envisioning this site, this historic site, as um, a potential community-serving place for San Francisco in the future. Um, who owned the land at the time? Because as we know, that's our first block to access is who owns it and what do they think they want to do with it? The property was held by um, inheritance in the Garibaldi family for years. Until 2017, they sold it to a developer who owns it now. So I think the original founders and, and myself as I, after I joined really uh, saw this as one of the last remaining opportunities for San Francisco to really um, put its money where its mouth is in terms of support for urban agriculture. So like, like I was saying, a lot of the barriers to this type of uh, landscape in the city have been really largely centered around land access and land tenure. And I think um, what's been a really sort of founding principle about this project is 
the idea that we need to be planning for longevity and permanence. And I think, um, you know, back in the early 2010s, when I sort of first got into this work in San Francisco, a lot of the projects back then and through today um, have been, we've seen a lot of turnover in urban agriculture in San Francisco. A lot of the projects have been largely temporary in nature. They've been seen as sort of interim use between development projects. Um, there's sort of a novelty to urban agriculture, I think, that I'd really love to dispel. I think there's still a lot of room for us to carve space for urban agriculture to be really taken seriously by the people who have the power to make these spaces happen. So I think the founding members of this greenhouse project and now the, the kind of current team are really committed to a space like this in the city being something permanent. And the reason for that permanence is so that the impact and the include, you know, the the engagement around a place like this is as um, impactful and positive as, as possible. It was sold by the remaining Garibaldi family to a development in 2017. Your project was launched in 2013, for, formally. Uh, what does the developer that bought the land, where do they fit in to the vision for this project? Are they on board or are they not on board? So the Greenhouse Project has uh, been working with uh, the sort of on the ground grassroots neighborhood group called Friends of 770 Woolsey, which is the group that has formed specifically around this particular parcel. Um, and so together we, in 2021, so just about a year ago, were able to negotiate a, a recorded property right. So we have, we as in this community, has an option to purchase the property. Um, that option has a deadline, so we have until July of this year to purchase. And if we if we fail to to raise the money to purchase the property, then the developer continues to proceed with um, their plans for market rate housing. So that's where we are now. Um, we're really sort of knee deep in a, a pretty pretty sizable and ambitious capital campaign to raise this property to to raise the money to purchase the property. It would then be, if you were able to purchase the land, uh, it would then be owned by the Friends of 770 Woolsey. Yeah, we're, we are fiscally sponsored currently by the San Francisco Parks Alliance, and we are have some active working groups going right now to determine what the ownership and governance structure of this permanent project would be. So right now there's sort of a holding entity um, that, that exists um, to help make this happen. And what that looks like long-term um, is still to be determined, but I think we're all very committed to the idea that this type of space will be its best version if it's community owned in some way, community yeah, governed. Yeah. And is there some scenario in which it would become part of the San Francisco Parks and Parks Alliance maintenance or Unclear. 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 Yeah. We're, we're, there's a lot of irons in the fire, yeah. a lot of conversations going, and we're, we're not totally sure. And how close are you to making this capital campaign a success? Well, it's a two-part campaign. The first part 
right now is to buy the property. And that's what will enable the second part, which is to raise the money to develop this full vision. And this full vision as it stands now, after some feasibility study work that we've done and after extensive community surveying around you know, neighbors' needs and desires for this space, that vision as of now includes a few sort of blocks, um, a few kind of concepts, which is outdoor and greenhouse production, so intensive food production, educational programming, so really kind of from the outset, establishing partnerships with um, local schools, with uh, other kind of community organizations to develop some robust educational programming around food production, um, and then also a commercial kitchen on site. So I, I think that is a really important piece um, that there will be, you know, value added goods and we will need to employ a lot of the, the same uh, business strategies that a small farm would in order to make something like this viable. I think what we have going for us is uh, access to market, access to a really enthusiastic and ready community, a community that's ready to engage and support and be supported by a project like this. That is a great vision, uh, a full vision uh, with a lot of, it seems, longevity built into it. How close are you? We're about halfway to the purchase price. So well done. we are, um, yep, we, we really hit the ground running. It's been a very, uh, it's a tight timeline for a campaign of this scale. Um, but like I said, the this work has been going for so long, and the ideas that 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 form the foundation of this of this vision have been in sort of brewing for so many years now. And I think, I think coming from Little City Gardens to a project like this feels so satisfying and feels so hopeful for me personally because I think we've been able to take the kind of time that's necessary to really build and connect with community around what would be the best version of a project like this. So this project from the beginning has um, really just been about tapping into the real needs, not the presumed needs, but the real needs of, of the people that will be affected by a place like this. And so I think, you know, that is slow, thoughtful work that is necessarily slow and thoughtful. Um, so I think even though this this fundraising campaign that we're in now is it's, it's short and our deadline is looming. Um, a lot of the thought and uh, planning that we've, that sort of informs that campaign has been going for years. When you pull out and sort of look at it from three stories up instead of, you know, in the thick of it on the ground, what are your greatest hopes for a model like this or for the um, the contribution of this fully manifested vision uh, to any city or any community of people, Caitlin? I don't think we're inventing anything new here. I think I think growing food in cities is not a new idea. It's just something that a lot of us are trying to find a way to return to and bring into a contemporary context. So I think, Urban agriculture as a movement or as a, a concept in people's minds still has a long way to go in terms of b building itself as something that's truly powerful and, and inclusive and necessary. Um, what am I trying to say? I think 
urban agriculture is an activity that's, you know, I think food production is an activity that's been designed out of cities maybe a bit more than it should have. And I think any of us in this sort of movement that are trying to advocate for this, a working landscape like this in the city are really just trying to bring something back that was once more ubiquitous. Food production and our, our food systems, what a food system really even is and what it looks like is so invisible to so many people that live in cities. And I think bringing food production closer to home is the way to facilitate a, a better connection for people. And I really feel like that connection is possible like we've been talking about, not just for people who already are interested in these things and already feel engaged with agriculture or nature or plants. Um, I think this, I, I feel hopeful that a landscape in a, like this in a city can be something that can engage uh, people from all cultures and, and walks of life in a city. Um, I think there's a lot of knowledge about a lot of agricultural knowledge in this that lives in the city that's just not tapped into a lot of ancestral knowledge people whose, you know, families um, used to, to live on farms or, or work on farms or grow food for their families from, you know, wherever, wherever in the world that are now, you know, in San Francisco and have lost access to a platform for kind of putting that knowledge to use. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I like very much the, the threads you just brought in to this in terms of restoring something that was there and in so doing, hopefully restoring people's, um, whatever their knowledge might be and their interest so that, so that we can make decisions about our food system from within the food system, not as kind of you know, onlookers uh, to to some very large wall in front of us trying to knock and get attention as to how and why food, uh, because as we know, it doesn't actually just show up on our plates. Uh, Somebody's making a lot of decisions about what and how that shows up in our lives. And for us to be more integral to that decision-making I think is only for the improvement of health, of culture, of economy. Um, thank you very much for being a guest and for for this work. You know, is there anything you would like to add about uh, about your expression of this connection and grounding going out into the world? I think one point I wanted to add, just to sort of step back, is. I think having a farm in a city, um, I'm really excited by the ways that it can raise awareness about farming that's going on outside of the city. So I think to have a, a, a hub really for kind of regional agriculture, regional food systems, having a farm in a city serve as a support for some of the really great work that's happening outside of the city, um, it, is, it just feels like an untapped area, at least in San Francisco, that I'm really excited about. I think San Francisco, like a lot of cities around the country, is going through really fast, rapid changes. Um, And I think there's a lot of displacement happening, a lot of people who feel very vulnerable, communities who feel vulnerable, and and communities who don't feel like they 
really have much of a say in how the city is changing. And I think a project like this gives me hope that there are still ways that we can sort of assert some collective voice and agency around what kind of spaces we want in the city. Um, you know, what, what makes a city livable? Um, I think how we build our cities now is just so important for, you know, generations to come. And I think with the, the climate emergency and the sort of really big picture uh, crises that are upon us, I think the more we can equip city residents, urban, urban residents to um, feel connected to those issues and connected to uh, you know, how our food systems and uh, how agriculture plays a role in any of those larger issues is, it feels really imperative. Oh, I could not agree more, Caitlin. Thank you for your work and for being a guest on the program today. It has been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Jennifer. The San Francisco Greenhouse Project is an urban agriculture initiative working to restore and repurpose a historic 2.2-acre agricultural site lined with abandoned greenhouses in the Portola community into a collaborative, visionary hub for food production, education, connection, and environmental stewardship. The project makes use of what already exists, improves on it, and grows it forward. The Greenhouse Project, fiscally sponsored by San Francisco Parks Alliance, aims to develop 770 Woolsey Street, San Francisco's last remaining block of historic agricultural greenhouses into a thriving urban agricultural hub and a permanent city resource. They believe that by making commercial food production visible to urban residents and by connecting neighbors across cultures and generations, urban agriculture can shape bigger picture knowledge around environmental and food system issues for generations to come. The project team is in their final month of fundraising to secure the Portola Farm Project site, and they have a deadline of July 31st, 2022. Links and more information on how to support this work are in this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Join us again next week when we're in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio, making a visit to Karen Cauley, the executive director of the Civic Garden Center of Greater Cincinnati, where for 80 years, this civic center has been a garden, providing and growing food, habitat, and education in a green and welcoming community center for all. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you. Thank you most recently to Chad, to Joe, to Flora, to Rachel, and to Kathy. For more information and many images of the work of the Greenhouse Project in San Francisco, head on over to cultivatingplace.com, where you can also support these civil gardening conversations through the support button at the top of every page there. Together, we grow the world better. 
The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.